You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I'm really excited to speak to you about this because a lot of our listeners know the Penkovsky story, um, but some of them don't. So could you just tell us what your movie's about? Well, yeah, it's about the... Um, it's actually really about the relationship between Ola Penkovsky and Greville Wynne. It's a sort of unusual spy movie in that it is about a relationship as much as it's about what they did together. Um, and as some of your listeners will know, there, uh, uh, Oleg Pankovsky was a war hero who um, was working for the GRU. He actually had had diplomatic placements um, and had been in, I think, Istanbul. Uh, you, what I have to, I have to make a quick disclaimer, which is I made this film over two years ago, and some of the information <laughs> which was I'd sure, yeah. and actually found fascinating, I've lost. But I'll just I know try that and feeling. Uh, <laughs> and he had his dad was a white Russian, had been a white Russian who'd been killed by the Soviets in the Civil War, so he sort of already had a sort of quiet private resentment towards them. But what happened was once they found this information out, the Soviets, which was not till about 60, something like that, 60, really close to the beginning of this film, um, they sort of blocked his advancement because he was very ambitious. He was he was quite a well-known guy. Um, and so at that point, he sort of said, right, I'm out. And he he had his ear to the ground. So there, were elements, there were elements of his motivation that were sort of um, honourable and sort of public spirited is not big, a big enough word but sort of heroic in a way and others which were self-interested and about sort of revenge and his desire to get out um but he sort of threw the towel in at that point and basically start uh, contacted through some american tourists at the cia and they approached mi6 to sort of say you know will you work with us on this they'd had a number of disasters with operatives over there in the 
in the time leading up to it. And they 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 decided they wanted to look for a um, a civilian, and Greville Wynne was the person whose name came up because he was travelling not to the Soviet Union but to other Eastern Bloc countries at the time, uh, selling basically manufacturing equipment. He was an engineer who was who was working in that. And so I was like, Excuse me, there are some building work going on here, so you might get the odd distant noise. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, so the film really starts at that point, and it's about how. Uh, uh, it's about how they worked together and how Greville Wynne, who's really the main character of the film, who was this sort of regular guy, even though the story he told was that he was a sort of <laughs> secret uh, agent, um, became, you know, involved in, in tied up with the uh, Cuba Missile Crisis, which was sort of bringing back huge numbers of incredibly valuable documents for the West. Uh, and my my understanding is that um, and you may know more than this, but my understanding was that during the Cold War, there was never um, a, a Russian spy who was at a higher level within the Soviet system as, as Penkovsky. And that's one of the reasons why, after they were found, um, the Soviets made a huge deal out of discrediting him during a show trial because he was a sort of notorious figure. I mean, in a good way, he was a sort of famous guy, and it was a huge embarrassment and humiliation for them that he had done what he'd done so but the basic the film sorry it's a very long answer the film sort of focuses on not just what they did together sort of in terms of in espionage terms but and and how they sort of transform one another's lives and especially how um uh, uh win's life was sort of transported by transformed by by his relationship with pankowski and i know that you have a strong background in the theater and like coming across a story and watching the movie, there's something almost Shakespearean about it, like a friendship, a, a sort of nobody who is a slightly Walter Mitty type figure, but who is genuinely caught up in high level espionage. And then you have, you know, the frustrated ambitions of a, of someone on the other side, uh, and how the two of them come together, and how this relationship plays out against a, you know, a bigger backdrop. Um, there's something, yeah, that I can see why a dramatist would be drawn to this. Was that was that a draw for you? Well, it's interesting you say that. Not consciously, but I absolutely. I think I often get drawn to stories that are both sort of psychologically or emotionally true, sort of on a sort of micro level with a big macro story. That there's some sort of bigger, big, bigger thing at stake. And I did train doing Shakespeare you know I sort of spent my early working years at the RSC and I always think Shakespeare's the sort of you know he he's the one to compare every story dramatic story to whether it's a film or a piece of theatre because he managed to bring these sort of strands of human experience together and um, yeah I loved I mean I think it's funny because I'm not particularly drawn to spy movies as a genre. It's not that I don't like them. They're not sort of things that I would seek out. And I, I've obviously reflected on that because I watched a lot to help me sort of un- get into this. And I think it's often because they focus so much on the sort of um, the doing aspects, if you like, the sort of espionage. And I find it hard to access as a regular human being um, how the human element if you like in that story in those stories and um what i liked about this script was that because it sort of starts with this regular guy it allows you to access it from sort of how would i react if i was suddenly thrown (laughs) into this um i've also always been fascinated by the cold war i studied it at school i went to soviet russia we had a very sort of um entrepreneurial teacher who sort of got us all over there um, on one of these uh, soviet organized trips and i've always found that whole 
moment in history absolutely fascinating so you know i was really really drawn to that as well and and was this always a an um yeah I'm, i guess my question is how did you come into this project if it wasn't you know i'm a diehard spy <laughs> spy genre kind of guy like how did this come into your lap and why did you say decide to run with it I was sent a bunch of scripts by my US agent, and Tom was represented by them at the time, Tom O'Connor, the scriptwriter. And I just started reading it, and I knew, knew nothing about the Grevelwin or Penkovsky story at that time. In fact, I didn't even know it was... I thought it was fiction when I started reading it, and it wasn't until I got to the end and started Googling that I realised it was a real story. Um, and I just... I, you know, it's so hard to say. The first, You sort of justify it after the event, but for me, often, it's in sort of instinctive connection uh with it and i i've done another film a few years ago set in the early 60s so i sort of had a feeling for that time and although i was born a few years later i sort of my parents have got together at that time I, I just sort of know the world even though i wasn't alive then that very formal very hidden very reserved british sort of world um the other thing that happened is that I'd, I'd read um about a year before the ben mcintyre book about um kim philby Mm-hmm. That's a great was, book, huh? Oh, what a book. What a it's, book. It's a humdinger. And it's so wonderful. And actually, there you go. You see, I was totally hooked into that. But the brilliant thing about that book is that it sort of gets you into what makes someone do that. And, of course, the level of deception in his case was off the charts. Um, but it's sort of, you can't help when you look at those people get into sort of what society was like at that time and the sort of very hierarchical, very, exclu- I mean, we have these problems still now, but the very sort of excluding nature of the, of the society and what resentment that created. So that sort of warmed me up a bit, actually, mm-hmm. into this world because I was so sort of knocked for six by how brilliant that was. Um, and, yeah, so, so it just sort of went and I thought, I really like this, and it sort of all took off from there from there i mean i think one of the the great things for me that ben mcintyre does is he draws out that human component right it's not just about the technology even in the philby book it's about a friendship between philby yeah. and you know an old colleague and yeah. yeah um i can see i can see why you love that book yeah uh, and and the next question is uh how did you as a director how do you prepare for this type of um movie do you do you have to go and you know start reading the books that are out there or is it more just you know i just deal with the script and the dramatic components but i don't need to go too much into it like what what's the kind of process like for you it's a really interesting process if you're dealing with sort of something real or lived because you have your commitment to storytelling and we know that any real quote unquote, well, this is a real thing, this actually happened. Uh, although with espionage, it's very hard to get to the truth, obviously. So there's a certain amount of speculation. Um, and there's certain things that are completely made up. But you have, you have your commitment to your storytelling and holding the audience. And then you have your sort of commitment to honoring what happened. So I think because you're compressing years of activity, into two hours you you do have to make some decisions and i think you know you have to sort of work out what story you're going to tell i mean even if you had a tv series where you had a lot more space and there's so much about this story on either ends and bits that we've left out that would make their own films because it really is a fascinating tale um 
you know, you, you sort of have to balance that out. So my my policy was essentially, you know, start with the conversations with Tom O'Connor, the writer, about what he uh, sort of drew from, and most and he completely drew from the public realm. So everything in this book, this um, this movie, comes from a sort of what is widely in the public realm, and he he had read all the other stuff. Um, but then you have to sort of really uh, familiarise yourself with as much information as you can. Only, but my sort of policy is it's, it's only you only use the bits that, in, that sort of reinforce and help the story because there will be lots of things that don't. There'll be lots of things that go sort of, well, that didn't happen in that order in that place at that time. And you sort of, that's not helpful. And I always do that with the actors as well because actors want to research. And I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, who I've worked with a few times, is absolutely mad keen on research. And I, you have to be careful because sometimes it can sort of unravel what's on the page for them. So it's a pragmatic approach, but I did find researching and understanding who these people really were and what really happened very useful. And we did change the script according to some bits and pieces that we found. Um, so, yeah, I did both. I did both. And I want to come back to the, you know, it's not a documentary, it's a, mm. it's a, it's a you know, movie. I want to come back to that, but I just... You mentioned uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I just wanted to ask about the casting of him. Was that in any way influenced by his previous role in a espionage movie, The uh, Imitation Game? Well, no, not really. It wasn't. I mean, I was. I'd worked with him. I've worked with him twice, sort of properly before. Although I also produced a play that he was in. We did a show in the theatre, and then we did the Hollow Crown together, where he played Richard the Third. So I sort of know him really quite well. And I do think he's magnificent. I just sort of think he's right up there. And if you're working with an actor like that, he's sort of a better as a director because he, he brings so much um, to, to a role. So I was sort of always in the back of my mind thinking, oh, let's try and find something else. And I was sort of was away into the, move, into the script and I thought, well, he's the perfect person to play this. He's, he's, he's who we have to ask. And I think it's because he does, he's comfortable playing sort of period stories you know he can take himself out of the present and put himself into the past in the way that he did in the imitation game you know to imagine what it was like to be a human being 60 70 years ago and you know i sort of think um that's not for everyone there are some people who can't really do that convincingly that's especially as a brit because i think we we're so different now to how we were um it all changed with princess diana dying i think but anyway that's a whole other story uh, <laughs> We got, we got him more um, in touch with their emotions. Then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because we were. I mean, to, to, to our detriment, I think. And we still are, to an extent. But when I look back at the sort of emotional repression of my parents and their parents, and you know, which was there for a reason. It was there because they were surviving situations that it wouldn't have been helpful to them to feel. Um, you know, and also we all sort of inherit this thing about running the empire. And I think sort of the people who ruled our society for so long were people who were running an empire and therefore couldn't show emotion. They had to hold it back. But if, so if you're playing a Brit of any class, actually, but especially sort of upper middle class Brit of that time or someone who behaves like an upper middle class Brit, you've got to sort of be able to play that sort of mask. But there has to be sort of humanity underneath. And I think that's quite a difficult balance to get. Um, you know, to, to be a vulnerable person. But I knew he could do that. Um, and I knew also, because the film goes to a very extreme place in the last sort of half an hour, um, which is actually verified by all the sort of research that one does, that, you know, the, it was a gulag, I and mean, it was absolutely ghastly. And um, I knew he would go there. 
You know, I knew he, he has a sort of appetite for extremes in his work, and I knew he wouldn't be frightened of sort of really taking the audience into that. So it was a sort of no-brainer, and the producers were like, yeah, you bet. And because I knew him, I could just call him up and say, look, would you have a look at this script? Um, and, you know, he was totally up for it. So it was, a, it was extraordinary speed, actually, with which the whole thing took off. Uh, because these days, the only way you can sort of get a film financed is to have... If you don't have one big star, you need to have two relatively big stars. Because <laughs> that that's how mm. they know they can sell it. Mm. Uh, but once he came on board, we were sort of away, really. It all happened very quickly. And, and there's a, a, you know, a really interesting scene at the end of the movie where you see... I hope this is not too much of a spoiler, mm. but you see a, a you know, a broken down uh, man in a shower, um, and it's a very emaciated looking uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and it made me think when I saw it, is that a kind of um, Robert De Niro-esque kind of, he lost all the weight for that scene, or is this kind of more modern movie kind of, you know? There's a tiny, it's, it's 85% Benedict lost the weight, which he did. They both lost a huge... We stopped shooting for three months, and then they, they wow. both lost a lot of weight, and he lost... I mean, it was shocking to see him, absolutely shocking. We did do a tiny bit of assistance, uh, sort of... It's amazing what you can do. Just a tiny bit of assistance in that shot to make sure it looked sort of... Uh, because what Benedict... Without <laughs> going too much detail, Benedict was also working out, so he was quite muscly, and we, I thought there were just bits of his body that looked a bit too muscly. So we did assist it slightly, but he had lost the weight, and... Um, he was, I mean, it wasn't just that he, it wasn't just the shock of sort of the physical loss of weight. It was what that does to you as a person, actually. It sort of made him so vulnerable and so sort of lost, um, even though he'd done it very sensibly with a lot of help and, you know, it was all sort of protein shakes and all that stuff. It, it really was a good thing to do because Greville Wynn did emerge from prison a shadow of who he was, and I don't think he ever recovered. I mean, in those days, you know, they didn't understand post-traumatic stress disorder. It wasn't even a term in those days. And, um, you know, he was just sort of, sort of sent back to his life, and he sort of fell apart. Uh, I mean, initially very dramatic. I mean, he got his life back together, but it really did affect him. So, you know, it was sort of important to somehow give a visual picture of that. Um, and, and Benedict was really brilliant in the way he embraced it you know, and went for it. So, yeah, we did. We, he starved himself, basically. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And other than, you know, you and the actors and the... Uh, Tom O'Connor's creative input. Were there any other inputs in terms of uh, existing family members or intelligence agencies, historical advisors, those sorts of things? Not really. No, uh, we did. We did reach out and see if we could find family members, but we couldn't. I mean, Penkovsky's family is still sort of flourishing. It seems to me. They. Uh, uh, you may know this story, but it's, it's really interesting. I think that because Penkovsky was 
so sort of high up in the food chain. And his wife was actually the daughter of a very eminent, uh, I think, military guy. Uh, they sort of got, the family sort of got off. Because what used to happen was that if there was a Soviet spy, the family would sort of disappear somewhere. I mean, I don't, no one knows what happened to them, but they'd be moved off to the east, probably. Whereas what happened with Pankowski's family was she divorced him immediately, changed her name back. And they sort of lived in a reasonably nice life in Moscow. And in fact, his granddaughter became um, joined the KGB, which I think is kind of extraordinary. Um, but uh, but there they are around. But you know what was? What, I'm sorry, I'm going off the track. You never heard a, back a, from them. Really, a really interesting element of what happened was that we cast all our Russian speakers, or most of our Russian speakers, in Moscow. So I went off with our brilliant um, casting director Nina Gold, and we spent a few days there. I've been to Moscow quite a lot for various reasons over the years. Um, actually, I love the Russian people. The sort of openness of the Russian people is extraordinary, and they're so sort of hospitable. But there was a definite sort of frostiness <laughs> towards <laughs> us. Or there was a mix. One, there was a sort of sense that they were very pleased that we were trying to cast Russian actors and they were very sort of respectful of the fact that we were trying to make it real. But that was mixed with a sort of deep mistrust of us because the Skripal poisoning had just happened. So at that point, Trump was in and America was sort of quite popular <laughs> <laughs> in Russia. And the Brits were absolutely public enemy number one. So there was that. But also they... Um, you know, when they, well, after Perestroika, there were many, many things that were not changed, which I think is one of the reasons why they ended up with this KGB guy running the country. Um, and, you know, the sort of, there was no sort of truth and reconciliation process. There was no sense of revising the history to include some of the appalling things that even during Stalin's era were done. And, um, and so the, the, the story about um, Penkovsky, which was put out vigorously, and actually, essentially, around one TV documentary, which, I mean, the lies they told about him, you know, they, they, they made out that he was not actually a war hero at all. You know, he'd been decorated 13 times, and he really was. He was sort of leading the fight against the Nazis in Kiev. Um, was all, was rubbish, and he was actually in an office, because the Russians have huge respect for the military, so that was one way. And, you know, he was a bit of a woman, I was a bit of a drinker. They totally upped all of that. Um, and essentially, that version of him, that he was a traitor, uh, is still the dominant version of the story over there. And he's much better known than, say, Greville Wynn is here. And they gave us a really hard time. I mean, really? the actors said they wouldn't even come in. They were Russians first before they were actors. Um, the younger people, less sort of critical. Um, but even on the set, not with so much with uh, our wonderful Mirab Ninidza, who was from Georgia, so he grew up in the Soviet Union. But, um, but some of the Russian actors were very suspicious of us and would come on set <laughs> and sort of go, no, we didn't have this. They point to a sort of prop. No, we never had this in USSR. No. And it was sort of, and it, you know, you're sort of sad. It made me quite sad because you think, look, whether you like the guy or not, he contributed to saving us from nuclear Armageddon. So come on. <laughs> um, but their view is that we're the brainwashed ones we are you know the product you know it's sad because this sort of intractable mistrust has crept in which i don't think was there so much 20 years ago when i first started going to russia regularly so that had an influence and then the rest of it was, was sort of more about you know research that we did on you know not only the historical events but the sort of world's of these people um, and their families and the sort of lives that they were living. And we just dug into it and it was really interesting. Really so, interesting. 
and Penkovsky's granddaughter that went into the KGB? She never got back to you? No, I mean, I'd love to hear from some... And, I, and the other person that we couldn't track down who is actually in the film is Andrew, the, the son. Now, my understanding is that they were estranged. Um, in, I don't know how, I don't know when, but they were eventually. I mean, he, him and Sheila, his wife, who's in the movie, split up, and he uh, married his secretary, and they went off and lived in, I think, Mallorca, somewhere in Spain, later on. But they were estranged. But, I mean, I'm presuming he's still alive... You know, he was born in, what, 1950-ish, something like that. So oh, one would presume he's still alive. So I was hoping maybe he might sort of get in touch at some point. I did have a really beautiful contact via Instagram from an old friend of his. This was, this was, once, this was only like two months ago. A woman who was in Belgrade and worked at the British Embassy and used to be his sort of contact there when he was selling stuff. And she had seen him the day that he left to go, because in reality he went to Hungary in uh, into Budapest to sort of try and get in to sort of the sort of back into the Soviet Union to get Pankowski out, and he was arrested in Hungary. And our version sort of cut that bit out. It's just too complicated. But she was with him that very day and described him. It was very, it was very moving to have someone who actually had that sort of relationship mm-hmm. with him. And and I feel like our listeners know probably more about Pankowski than about uh, Greville Wynn. Could you just? <laughs> briefly tell them who Greville Wynn was and why he matters and why he was such an interesting figure in your movie? Yeah, he's, he is a real... Well, once you dig into anyone's life, it's interesting. If you get into enough detail, everyone is fascinating, in my, in my opinion. And Greville Wynn was a really complicated guy. So the main thing about him was that he was from a sort of working-class uh, Welsh background, quite rural background. His mother was hugely aspirational and really wanted the best for him. She was sort of almost illusions of grandeur type person. And she sort of pushed, she sort of cultivated him to live a better life. And so, and he was obviously very bright, but he had terrible dyslexia, which at the time wasn't recognised. So he was treated, sort of in school, he was put to the back of the class, sort of, you know, failed everything. Um... And I think that, the combination of those two things, the sort of push to live a better life, the aspirational side, with this sort of, what was, I suppose, a disability, really, uh, really cast a very long shadow over his life. And one of the most useful details we found in our research, we noticed that in every photograph of Greville Wynn, he's wearing the same tie. And we found out what the tie was. And the tie was a Nottingham University but he hadn't been to Nottingham University. Oh, wow. However, what we found was that he had attended some lecture, lectures there in engineering. He, he couldn't have got in because of his dyslexia. And I thought, when, I, when we discovered that and realised that he wore that every single day for the rest <laughs> of his life, he was the kind of guy that would have worn a tie every day, irrespective of what he was doing, um, I really sort of understood who he was, in that he sort of wanted to be sort of respected he wanted to be admired and that's borne out by other things like the fact he married his wife Sheila was sort of upper middle class uh, and they had a nice house in Chelsea and you know he set this business up which was doing well you know he was industrious he was bright he was you know uh, and a talented I think engineer with a lot going for him Um, but there was this sense of thwarted ambition and I think that's one of the reasons. So he was, yeah, he was exporting. He was, he was doing quite well, selling, selling equipment to the Soviet Union, to the Soviet 
sort of satellite states. Um, and he had this business, which Sheila also worked in sort of doing the paperwork. Um, but what was interesting, I mean, when you look at his book, his books, um, I mean, they're full of fantasy. And there's a very, there's a, well, not necessarily fantasy, but a lot of them are made up. And there's actually a reason why they were made up. I don't think it's just him being, being a sort of fantasist. Although I'm sure the bits where he sort of ups his heroism, you know, were things that he fantasized about himself. Um, but all the stuff about the fact he'd had this relationship with MI6 going away about, which is totally false, as far as I can see, um, was, I think, to do with the fact that because he lost a lot of his business opportunities after he came back to Britain, because they were all based in the former Soviet uh, states, he sort of upped, trying to, he tried to up the ante as a sort of spy hero and a bit of a celebrity. So he wrote these books. And in order to get on chat shows and all the rest of it, he sort of made himself into more of an interesting character than he was. And until MI6 said, right, stop. Um, if you don't stop, we're removing your pension. They got really fed up with him. And I think it was sort of unfair on their part because they hadn't helped him deal with uh, what it was like to come back. They had sort of used him. Um, I think he was a pain. Um, and they sort of wanted to shut him down. And I think that's one of the reasons why we know so little about him, because he had to shut up after a while. And it's interesting that both uh, Greville Wint and Penkovsky, both of them uh, thwarted ambition as part of both of their stories. Do you think that was, did that feed into their friendship? Absolutely. It was a source of, I mean, when I first read the script i thought this is like brief encounter it's a sort of platonic love affair and actually going back to his book his books the, there are two elements that ring completely true to me one element is his story of what it was like to be in the gulag there's a sort of detail in that that you couldn't make up and the sort of psychological war he was at with kgb i, I totally believe that and the other thing was his absolute adoration of, Plen of Plenkowski. And I think, I think Penkowski, whilst he was thwarted, was the kind of man that Greville Wynn wished he had been, in that he was this extraordinary guy who had achieved a huge amount. But I agree, they were both sort of thwarted by their systems, if you like, and felt that they were unwanted and outsiders. They were both sort of good-time guys. They liked women and drink. And they were both conservative, they were both sort of politically conservative. I just think they got along like a house on fire. And, th and that's something that was also intensified by the fact that the operations were so private and, and, you know, secret and no one knew what was going on other than the people managing their case, managing their case, um, but their wives and so on. It sort of, that's why it reminded me of Brief Encounter because it's like an intense relationship that is intensified by the secrecy and privacy uh, around it. And I, I think it really was a sort of soul, a meeting of souls. And I think that, you know, I, my, I, I, everything I've read indicates that Greville Wynn was pretty resilient under the pressure that he was, the pressure he was put under in the Gulag. And he, he sort of um, didn't give anything away. And I think, there were, I think he loathed the Soviets politically, and that helped him. But also he was protecting his best mate. And he he felt he'd been looked after by Penkovsky and that he was going to do the same for him. So those two things, I think, gave him the resilience he needed to sort of get, you know. And what were the two systems that thwarted them? Would one be the, the British class system and the other one was the, 
the legacy of the Russian Revolution, the Whites and the Reds and Penkovsky's uh, family background? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Penkovsky was, a, was an individualist. He saw himself as outside the system. And there are many reasons for that. I mean, he had a very big ego. Um, I think he was a talented man as well. But absolutely, his background, his sort of, it's almost like a sort of, it's a deep-rooted, it's a, you know, connection, connection to his father and their position in society. So, yeah, he was a, he was a profound individualist. And I think Greville was sorted by the class system, absolutely, and by the sort of unimaginative world that he lived in. I mean, I don't think he'd have defined it that way because he was very sort of patriotic and very sort of, uh, you know, sort of pro sort of the establishment and so on. But I think probably underneath that, there was a, a sort of anger um, and a resentment. And I mean, that's one of the things we tried to stress in the movie because I didn't really want to do that thing where, you know, London is lovely and Moscow's horrid. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. I mean, the thing about the Soviet system is, although it was ghastly and repressive in so many ways, it did deliver things that the Western societies didn't deliver. You know, universal um, uh, universal employment, universal health care, great education. There were lots of things. And when you go to Russia now, especially when you get out of Moscow, they sort of long for it to come back. So it's not quite as simple as that. And, you know, it's not like if you were from a working-class background growing up when Greville winded, that you would feel that you were adored and loved by British society. It was also very conformist. It was very narrow in its sort of understanding of what you what you should be. So we tried to sort of, just in the aesthetic and the way we told the story visually, we, we tried to sort of um, make them sort of equivalents within their own society. So we did like subliminal things like actually the set that Greville, Greville wins flat, the inside, is exactly the same set as the one that Penkovsky lives in. It's just the cameras in a different place <laughs> but we tried to did, did quite a few things like that mm. so it wasn't about two societies that are vastly different it was about two individuals that are sort of at odds with their own societies yeah that, I, i'll need to look for that the next time i watch it yeah, it's almost like a, a ca- thing, ca- yeah. kitchen sink uh, drama kind of uh, for both of them going on yeah <laughs> and one of the one of the other questions that i really wanted to ask was like as a director what kind of research did you do for this in terms of previous movies that worked within the genre did you did you go back and watch you know the spy who came in from the cold and you know all that kind of stuff or were you just like it's probably better it doesn't start clouding my judgment tell us no i did watch all those movies and in fact the spy came into the cold was really influential um for me because it had a sort of Again, it's not completely my cup of tea, like the temperature of it, but it's a brilliantly achieved film. And it's very sort of austere, which I really liked. And it's sort of grubby. And I didn't want our film to uh, have a feeling of being too glamorous. I wanted it to feel a little bit sort of more like that, that sort of grubbiness. Um, I mean, I do remember, you know, even London in the 70s was just sort of filthy and horrible. I mean, <laughs> all the buildings were covered in soot. And I think when you make period movies, often they look very polished and rather lovely, and I didn't want either world sort of to feel like that. Uh, and, yeah, I watched quite a lot of them. I watched Tinker Taylor. I watched The uh, Bridge of Spies. I'm just trying to think. I mean, I watched a, quite a few. But I also watched a lot of other movies from 60, 61, uh, 61, 62. It was quite an interesting period for movies. And uh, we, there were various things that we did in the way we shot the film, 
which are sort of nods back to the way they made films in those days. And do you think that there are particular things that that like the spy uh, genre can do or things about the human story that you can bring out that you saw in any of those movies or that you try to instill in your own movie? I think one of the reasons, I've been thinking a lot about this, one of the reasons why the spy genre is so both in fiction and in film and and in television, is so resonant for so many people, is that obviously the stakes are really, really high. So individual actions have massive potential resonance and the risks, the individual risks, are massive. Um, (laughs) People are putting their lives on the line. uh, And in some ways there's always heroism in it, even when it's sort of self even when there's a self-interested element because they are trying to do something for a sort of bigger principle so there's that element but i think there's also the element of deception and and sort of um role play which is fascinating and you sort of think you know the levels of which I and mean, when you when i read the ben mcintyre book i mean i mean kim philby is a extreme example isn't he because mm-hmm. Because he deceived every single person, basically, <laughs> around him, including those incredibly close to him. And you just think, God, how do you do that? You must have to believe the role you're playing, like an act, like a really good actor. You must have to sort of play that role as if it's absolutely real. Because the people he was dealing with and the people around him were smart people who were used to reading the room sort of thing. Um, and um, <laughs> it, it's just that it's so interesting, the sort of how do people do that? Um, and 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 you know, so we all do it to a degree in our lives. We have to sort of pretend, you know, at times um, for the sort of greater good in small ways. But to to be able to do that to that level is sort of incredible. So I do think there are things in the in the inherent, especially in the Cold War, but inherent in the sort of spy genre that are very appealing for audiences and readers. And when you when you think of Philby, it's almost like Daniel Day Lewis and Marlon Brando on steroids because yeah. you know, like as an actor, you may have to convince an audience for two or three hours that you are that character. But Philby done it for most of his life, which is quite a feat. Um, incredible feat. I mean, incredible, but also so sort of lonely. I mean, and that's one of the things that you know we did sort of think about when we were doing our film because. If you can't tell your wife or your partner what is the most important thing in your life at that point, it's quite a lonely place to be. And um, you wonder how people cope with that. I mean, I'm sure that there have been studies done into sort of the personality types, you know, of people who are drawn into this kind of work. Although, actually, again, the Ben Mann type book made it really clear that it was sort of basically if you were posh, it was something you could do at that point, <laughs> you know? You could sort of just drift into from, you know, Oxbridge, you know, in the way that it was extraordinary, the way that they sort of recruited. It was like the old boys' network. Um, but you must have to have something in you, a sort of sang-froid or an ability to detach in order to function really well, really successfully, under those sort of conditions. And the Brits, I suppose at that time, were doing that all the time anyway, so it was maybe the posh Brits were just good at it because they were always covering up everything. <laughs> and just to come back to uh, The Courier, as a, as a director, walk us through that process of, okay, on the left you've got like the real world, the real events that happened and so forth, and then on the other side you've got 
the limitations of the genre. I mean, even even for a documentary, you'd still have to edit down so much that it would still be a take on reality. But you know, as a as someone that's writing a drama that that in storytelling has certain kind of you know things attached to it, tell us how you balance all of that. Mm, it's out very or, interesting. It's like doing long multiplication. I think what you've got to do is you've got to reinforce the reality on screen, right, with as much, with anything you can. And the thing is, you're always sort of working with what you've got. So, for example, obviously your actors are everything. And you've got to sort of help each of them to find a reality and a truth to what they're doing. But I, but I suppose I suppose in the larger picture, you know, because we did have to sort of compress. and So, for example, you know, the... You know, the CIA uh, operatives, of which there were two main people who were both men, we sort of ditched them and made them into one. And then we decided, because there's another really important player in this story, who's Janet Chisholm, who, I mean, that's another movie. It's an incredible movie, because she was the wife of, the, of a British diplomat who sort of, it was a relay race with her and, and Wynne. And she was bringing a lot of stuff over. She was based there. She was she was bring, taking a lot of stuff to the British Embassy. And we thought, well, let's honour the female presence in this story <laughs> in a different way. So we, there's a sort of, I think there's a sort of morality around it when you know that you can't tell the whole truth because, you, you know, I mean, just in story 10 times, you had two uh, CIA operatives as, as there were. It just complicates that bit of the story so much that you've got to establish two characters. You'd probably have to do things to those characters to make them justify having two separate points of view, you know. And you sort of very quickly dis disperse the sort of concentration of the movie. So you've got to sort of put that into one person. So and you've got to sort of, like, compress the American point of view, the British point of view. Um, and but what you're trying to do is is make that work dramatically, but, but make it work in a way that doesn't sort of betray the facts. And I think that's that's the best you can do if you've got a two-hour story. And then yeah, and then we would sort of. Um, I mean, I did a lot. Of, I was lucky to have a bit of rehearsal time with the actors, which of course is crucially important for me because that's where you establish everything. And when they turn up on set, you've got so little time to actually shoot the scenes. You really, I always think it's very important to do some rehearsals so that you've at least talked through the circumstances. And in those rehearsals, especially with Mirab and um, Benedict, who were playing Pankowski and Wim, we did an awful lot of sort of sort of. I would feed the research that was useful. So I would do the sort of reading of the books, but I would I would I would photocopy the pages that were useful, basically, or or put bullet points in that I thought would help them to imagine and see who these people were. Anything that I thought was not useful, I just didn't point in their direction. I mean, they read, so they read quite a lot of stuff, um, and actually with Mirab, because he'd grown up in the Soviet Union, it, a lot of it was about getting rid of what he thought of as Penkovsky and getting to our version of Penkovsky, who was much more benign, um, and trying to sort of help him inside, to get inside that person, mm -hmm. of what he thought he was doing. Um, and that's difficult when the motivations are so complicated, which they are actually with someone like that, because they are both, he didn't want Khrushchev to blow the world up, plus <laughs> he hated Soviets they brought it to him so so it's those kinds of things we are trying to just help the actor and, and the film find a sort of insideness to the story and i mean one of the things i guess uh for any 
Russians that are listening to this, you, you know, you mentioned being in Russia, Russia, they'll say, well, this guy was happy when the system was doing well by him, but then all of a sudden his career gets thwarted and he switches sides. I mean, was he really, did he really care about individuality and freedom and, you know, saving the world or was it just his career or, or I think what you're saying is that there was a variety of overlapping I think it's things. both. And I, to be honest, I think, I mean, it's, we all want to be able to sort of create very simple uh, through lines, especially actually if you're an actor, you've got to go boom. But I often think, unfortunately in life, there's normally more than one motivation to get someone to do something as big as that. And I, I really believe that Penkovsky was a patriot. I really do believe that, I mean, someone who did what he did in the first, Second World War and made massive sacrifices. Um, I think he, you know, the, a white Russian would say they were a patriot. It's just their version of Russia is not a version of Russia that the Soviets believed in. So that was always my view. In fact, when I first, um, when I first agreed to do the film, when we talked to financiers about it, they were going, but he's a traitor, isn't he? And I was like, I don't think he's a bit, I don't think he sees himself as a traitor, not to Russia. He'd be happy to say he was a traitor to the Soviets because he didn't believe the Soviets were Russia. And I mean, actually, the psychology is used even now by Putin, which is if you're critical of Putin, you're somehow having a go at Russia. Whereas you might say, actually, if you're critical of Putin, you want the best of Russia. So, you know, I, I, I can understand why people would see uh, selfishness in what he did. And there was some selfishness, no question. Um, and who's to say whether he, if he'd have got, if they hadn't have found out about his father and he'd have stayed in Istanbul. In fact, I think he was about to be posted to India. Uh, I think that was about to happen. He was about to be posted somewhere. I think it was India. Um, if he'd have carried on being posted around the world so he could live a nice life, you know, in diplomatic positions all over the place, maybe he wouldn't have. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. he wouldn't have. But, you know, in a way, in a way, you could also just push back by saying, well, why the hell would they thwart him just because of what his dad did? I mean, what kind of system is it that stops you from, you know, progressing because your father was, wasn't on the same side? It's sort of, they sort of brought it on themselves, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, I don't have, I mean, I consider myself politically on the left, but I absolutely have no truck at all with the Soviets. And I think, you know, what they did and the, and the oppression and the repression and the murder that happened um, in the name of, you know, very honourable principles mm -hmm. uh, was appalling. And, you know, we still really haven't sort of looked at it fully. And I know that you have to go soon. So just a, a couple of final questions. One is, you know, I think that like watching this movie and you mentioned this earlier, there could easily be, it seems to me, there could easily be three movies out of this one story. Um, so the question is, are there any plans for developing the Penkovsky win story anymore? And if not, is there any plans for a future spy-related uh, movie? Well, I know it's straightforward answer to that, but but I have to say that I was very affected by, you know, when, always, when, when you're doing something, you're always thinking, God, I've never seen that story before. And I think with this, I felt I'd never seen a story about someone's private life when they're, you know, and their wife and their the reality of what it felt like to deceive them. And, the friendship and the admiration, all those of the loyalty that was also there. So I didn't feel that I'd seen that before. But I, I mean, I think the two bits of this story that are really, really appealed to me are, are sort of less to do with the espionage and more to do with the aftermath. And I think that I think it'd be very interesting to see a film 
or a TV show or something, a story about someone coming back from a mission like this, especially a civilian and being dropped back in to life and being expected to sort of carry on. Especially at that time, because there wasn't much sort of, especially if you're a man, you were expected to be man and get on with it. You know, there wasn't so much sympathy. <laughs> um, but I think what happened to him afterwards is really interesting. Um, and then I think the whole the whole sort of life of, I mean, the Janet Chisholm story is a film, absolutely is a film. What an interesting woman. And also the, the intricacies of all of that, because the sort of those people who into spy stuff, the sort of box of chocolates with the <laughs> microfilm in, that kind of thing, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Um, and then, and then I, I, I'm also just really interested in the sort of background of someone like Gravel Wynn and how they sort of got um, the, the, the complexity of him as a man, you know, um, being sort of in that, feeling like an outsider. Um, they're all great stories. You've just got to be quite ruthless. I think if you're if you're telling if you're telling a story, even if it's over eight episodes, you've got to go. Okay, what? is the heart of this story what is the spine here for us and there's definitely another five movies even just this bit of the story that you could tell in a totally different way you know because there's a huge amount of material in what happened so what one sort of makes a decision and you try and build something out from that and that's you know we made a very clear decision about sort of what our arc was and and final question more than a few listeners of Spycast have, you know, great stories. Uh, many of them were involved in the world of intelligence and espionage. And it's, it's almost like there's a contradiction there for many of them because they've got great stories, but by instinct and training, they're kind of, you know, they yeah, lean reti- towards keeping a hold of their story yeah, or being reticent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as someone who gets scripts coming across their desk, gets ideas coming across their desk and who has implemented them and, and certainly mm-hmm. with the Courier a Spy movie. The question is, what advice would you give to anyone that's listening to this who thinks they've got a humdinger of a story but don't know how to package it and get it out there? I think just write it down and send it off to someone. I mean, to be honest, I think the best starting point is to write a book. easier said than done oh just go off and write a book because if something gets into the public domain that way then then the likelihood is that if the story holds it will sort of get um get in get get being made into a film um i mean the thing is it's it's interesting isn't it there's the story and there's the sort of craft of turning that story into a sort of piece of uh, digestible fiction or a film. Now, some people can do both, and there's no reason why someone who experienced something can't also write the write the book and write the film script. But more often than not, their story will sort of be taken by someone else and, and sort of crafted into something. So, so I suppose that's the first question. Um, but I don't. I mean, what's been interesting for me with this film is sort of I don't. It's how well it's doing. I don't want to sort of <laughs> I want to trap it. But I've been. I mean, especially in the in COVID, it's doing really quite well in the US with it, you know, and they've only just opened a lot of the state's theatres and um, and I sort of think, gosh, that's so interesting, you know, because we didn't, it's only an independent movie, so it hasn't had a massive budget, if you look at the sort of publicity budget. I mean, they've done great, the distributors done really well, and they've pushed as hard as they can, but we're, we're talking about, like, a fraction of the sort of budget that a big studio would have to do a film like this, and yet people are coming out to see it, and they're really recommending it. 
And I think a lot of that is a genre. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I think there is a huge appetite for reasons we've already discussed mm. for this genre. So the real stories are always more complicated and fascinating than people give them credit for. So just either write the story down yourself or send it to Ben McIntyre or someone else. <laughs> I mean, or send it, send it as a treatment to a producer, to some sort of a producer who's done work that you, you admire. People are always looking for new stuff. And um, I think TV is a really good place at the moment. TV is sort of where it's at. It's much easier to get things greenlit for television, much easier. There's so much more being made. There's so much more money. It's so much safer because you know that you can get your money back. And the good thing about the complexity of an espionage story on television is that you can actually develop the intricacy of it because it is the intricacy of it that's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, there aren't that many of those things happening now uh, on TV. So I think there's a real opportunity there. And I'm really looking forward to our event uh, later, the press sure. preview. And next week, we also have an event for the Spy Museum. But just for our listeners, um, where, when is the movie out? Where can they see it? To give them a bit more information, please. Yeah, so in the UK, the movie's out um, in, um, in theatres in May the 19th. It's going, so it's out in the US, in North America, basically. And it's going on to Amazon Prime, I think on the, oh God, around the 20th of April. I should know all this, of course I don't. So basically what's happened is it sort of opened in the US um in a way that's sort of in two stages with an overlap so it's open in movie theaters and then it'll open sort of just over a month after it opened in the movie theaters it will open in uh, it'll sort of go online in one of those things we actually have to pay quite a lot <laughs> and you'll pay quite a lot for a while but it'll also be in the movie theaters and that will happen in the uk in starting in may and sort of going on to uh, june i think at some point it will then go online so those people who aren't um, sort of feeling confident enough to go out to a movie theatre yet uh, can stay at home and watch it. I mean, I personally, I would strongly recommend going to see it in a movie theatre because it was made for the big screen. It wasn't made uh, as good as your know, home TV screens are nowadays. It's very, very different. And the whole pace of the movie feels different on a big screen. And it was a cinematic thing. So if you can go, go if you can get out, go and see it in a movie theatre. Well, I've watched it three times now, uh, and <laughs> I loved it. So, congratulations on the movie! Thanks, and, Andrew. Uh, thank you very yeah, much. It's been great to speak to you, Dominic. We've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Right, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. The International Spy Museum is a full five hundred one c three non profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at Spy Museum. Dot org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K Cyberwire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.